Robert Watt is the Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. He's an economist with broad experience in both the public and the private sector. He was previously an Assistant Secretary in the Sectorial Policy Division of the Department of Finance. That's another one for a business card, uh, where he had responsibility for overall expenditure policy, which included managing the annual estimates process. So not a lot to be getting on with there, really, I would imagine. Uh, you'll have loads to tell us. Will you give a big welcome, please, to Robert Watt? Well, thank you very much, and uh, it's a pleasure, a pleasure to be here, and great to be at the event where we have academics and researchers and practitioners, uh, civil service and politicians talk about policy. And I do believe we need much more of, of these discussions and much more of these debates. So thank you for the invitation, and thank you to Jim, uh, for his, uh, his paper, which is thought-provoking. It makes difficult reading at times for some of us who are involved uh, in the process. And Jim will be astounded to hear that I don't agree with, with everything he's, he's, uh, uh, he's, he's he said. Where is he? He's gone, disappeared already. Uh, but I do agree with this. I won't spend too much time talking about the report. I'll, I'll general broad discussion to other issues. But I do agree with the notion that too much, we try to achieve too many objectives, and we try to do it uh, too, quick, uh, too quickly. But it's sort of interesting to think about why was that the case? And that was the case because ultimately the administrative and the political system believed the benefits of this policy were very significant. That the benefits of actually introducing a system where people started to value this precious commodity water. And also that we'd actually put in place a system where we would have an adequate funding mechanism that would enable us to invest adequately in this underinvested uh, network. And it was, as, as Maria mentioned, it was to move policy ultimately to a utility-based approach, as we have with gas and electricity, to guarantee the funding uh, of the future. And the question then is, when the political system was seeing that this policy wasn't going that well, and that was pretty clear, I think, from a certain stage, and it certainly wasn't going to be popular, even if it could be implemented, why did the system continue to push? And it pushed because it didn't believe this type of reform is possible in peacetime. And why is that? And that's a really important issue, I think, for political scientists and practitioners and commentators. What is it? Is it something particularly uniquely Irish, maybe, or not, about our difficulty to have these grown-up discussions and our capacity to implement difficult policies in normal times, where the system decided to push and push something so difficult on top of so much else that was going on uh, at the time? It's an interesting question. I think, though, to look on this positively, and this is something I won't dwell on it too much, there are benefits that have been mentioned about the fact that we have this utility and we, we, we have metering. And over time, we'll start to see, I think, more and more of the benefits of the fact that the policy got so far, not all the way across, but it got so far, and we'll see in the future how that works out. So it's great to have this broad conversation on public policy. And my department and the policy community in the civil service is in the business of evidence-informed policymaking because we have ambitions for better policy, because we believe this leads to better outcomes for our citizens. But what do we mean when we talk about better public policy? We mean decisions which lead to better outcomes, more effective policy. We mean feasible policy in the right place at the right time, and which is implementable, and obviously affordable in the medium and long term. We mean fair and coherent policy, which is situated within an agreed political framework of the kind of society in which we want, we want to live. And we mean policy which ensures value for money and maximizes the value of scarce state resources. So that sounds really very easy as a, as a goal, and we can put all that into a 140-word tweet or whatever, social media post. That's really, what we're, that's really what we're about in all its dimensions. 
And uh, Jill's organization, the Institute for, for Government in London, uh, has a great quote, and it's so great I'm going to read it out in full. In real life, policymaking is messy. It is created through a complex interaction of ministerial departmental priorities, public attitudes, media, civil service capacity, and other factors in addition to evidence and expertise. Policymakers act as ringmasters, polite way of putting it, pulling together input from these multiple sources. So how do we try to make policy in this messy world? What's the reality behind this quote? That's what I'd like to talk about, uh, talk about today. So why is, why is this difficult? It's difficult because public policy in many of its dimensions is so complex and broad. The government policy encompasses so many aspects uh, of our lives. It is about delivery of services now, but also long-term planning uh, for the future of the state. Uh, and if you look at the plan we have now in terms of the National Development Plan and the Spatial Plan, a longer-term vision for where the state will be in the future. It's also difficult because good policy can't deliver gains for everyone. And good policy normally involves uh, losers and should be targeted. And this requires, as we discussed already, effective implementation and also more effective uh, communication. I don't think anybody mentioned during the discussion so far the Strategic Communications Unit. We're not allowed to talk about this anymore. And that was, uh, that was uh, I shouldn't say, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but that was an attempt to actually improve how the government communicates with the people, the taxpayers, the citizens who fund the services that are, that are, that are provided. And obviously, it became a political issue and we moved on, but it was a genuine attempt to try and prove how we communicate and how the system communicates uh, what we're about. So policy is not just about, of course, a specific public good or service, it's about improving outcomes, uh, life expectancy, literacy education outcomes, the provision of income supports, effective social supports, uh, measures in relation to climate change and, and, uh, and adaptation. So it's not just about delivering something, but it's about that actually seeing what is the outcome in terms of outcomes for people's, for people's, uh, for people's lives. Uh, I think it's also, when we look at this, to think about the size and scale of what government does. And uh, it's easy to forget, the Irish state, uh, we, we will spend more than 62, 63 billion this year. Most of it is on education, health, uh, social protection, social transfers, uh, and justice. And the system has grown very rapidly. Like we became, from the 70s, we became a developed economy very quickly. And the resources became available for us then to put in place these supports. So compared to some other European countries, we actually had our development period in a relatively short period of time. And this new state, the state that we see providing these public goods with this social welfare system, for example, is relatively new. And just to take one example, the social transfer system, of uh, 20 billion, with, with uh, Deputy Burton was responsible for for a period in government. That system grew from about a system of about four or five billion in the late 80s, early 90s, to a system now of 20 billion. A very rapid expansion in the level of social supports. And to look at another area of enormous growth and complexity, the third level system. We now have almost 200,000 students within the third level system. How many students did we have in the third level system when I was born in 1970? 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, a rapid expansion in infrastructure, capacity, courses, uh, and so on. I think when we look uh, at the challenges we face, we need to reflect upon that complexity, but also the growth uh, of the system over time. Scale, of course, is one aspect when we think of policymaking, but there are also a whole variety of myriad of drivers or inputs into policy from a whole variety of different directions. Citizens at local level, through local government planning for local or regional issues, national issues, national concerns, policy issues that arise from international obligations, 
particularly in relation to the United Nations or, of course, the, the European Union. Uh, the, our colleagues in the UK are now grappling with the scale of obligations arising from membership of the European Union. I think there's a figure of 36,000 pieces of legislation uh, arising from their obligations within, within the EU. So the scale, the scale of the, of the policy-making process arriving from a membership of the European Union in itself uh, is significant. So in making decisions, government must deal with various trade-offs, assessment of costs and benefits or other issues. I'll try to discuss, discuss these very, very briefly before talking a little bit about some of the improvements we've tried to introduce over the last number of years. The first challenge, of course, is what is the public interest? So in this room, we all have our individual views about what may represent uh, the public interest. It's a contested space where public interest obviously reflects the values which arise out of the political democratic process. And within any policy area, these values need to be clarified when we try to set out what we're trying to achieve. Often, the public interest defining it is fraught with difficulty. I'd just like to take one example, topical example, the issue of competitiveness. So from a macroeconomic policy goal, everybody's in favor of improving the competitiveness of the Irish economy. And at the moment, uh, we're going through this wonderful process where we have every sector in the country coming in telling the Minister of Finance that they need this tax change, this expenditure increase, this regulatory change, in order to improve the competitiveness of their sector and hence their growth prospects. That may work from a partial analysis, but once you move to the general equilibrium analysis, you add it all up, it doesn't work for the economy as a whole. And that was one of the big mistakes we made uh, in the 2000s, where you add it all up, when you get to the aggregate level, we end up with imbalances which we know are very difficult to address when they start to unwind. So there's no consensus, ultimately, around that very significant issue of, of policy. When you go from a sectoral assessment of competitiveness to the overall view of what's right for the macro, macro economy. And you could argue in relation to fiscal policy. Uh, I, I'm sort of, you know, it's incredible listening to people uh, telling us about the need for counter-cyclical fiscal policy, which of course is absolutely critical for an economy like us, monetary union growing rapidly. But everybody's in favor of it until you start talking about what that actually means for taxation and expenditure proposals. So when it comes to what is the public interest, people will tell you at the same time, of course we need to manage our affairs differently from the past. Of course we need to manage and avoid the problems of, but I want my tax cut, I want my uh, expenditure increase. So within this space, debates about the public interest are highly contested and subject to great uncertainty. And even if we've decided upon what the goal, what policy instrument do we use to actually achieve that goal? And there are a variety of different ways in which the government intervenes to expenditure, current capital, taxation measures to raise revenue, but of course also increasingly to change behavior and try to achieve uh, outcomes by, by changing behavior and various regulatory legislation and other tools to affect, to affect behavior. And when I was uh, doing economics, which is a few years ago now, um, at the same time as Alan, well, I think Alan was a bit earlier than me, but anyway, uh, welfare economics and rationality was, was, was all, so, you know, we'd look at climate issue and we'd say, okay, we adjust a carbon tax, change relative prices, that will lead to an impact on demand and so on. And with behavioral economics, which wasn't really a discipline uh, when I studied economics, behavioral economics has provided us with a whole variety of different insights into not only the type of measure or type of tool, but the, but the nature of that intervention, the design of the intervention. And there's a variety of, of issues around that. And of course, this is leading to more, even more uncertainty about outcomes. And we live in this uncertain world. And I guess a key challenge for policymakers is to try where possible to reduce this uncertainty, to try where we can to look at options and to reduce the uncertainty and have more confidence about the impact and the outcomes that we're expecting from particular policies. So the question we always have to ask, do we understand the direct and indirect consequences of what we're proposing? Do we have the best possible evidence? We're never going to have perfect evidence, but do we have the best possible evidence? And that is the goal that we set ourselves.
I think it's very interesting uh, to give another example. Housing policy at the moment, it's probably uncontroversial to say that in the short run, housing supply is inelastic. We know this from our experience in the past. We know that excessive credit conditions in the context of, of inelastic supply will be reflected in price expectations. The main beneficiaries of that will be those who own land, and it's reflected in, 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 in the, price, the price of land. And we know that macroprudential rules are absolutely essential, particularly in the short run, I would argue, but over, over the, the entire cycle, to avoid build-up in credit and to avoid the excesses that we've had in the past. It's incredible to listen to the debate around macroprudential rules, around demand-side measures when it comes to housing policy. Uh, as if we haven't learned the lesson from so many other countries, so many periods of their history and our own history, that we believe that going back to make the same policy mistakes will lead to a different, a different outcome. Uh, and, it's, uh, and you can pick many other examples of, of where the policy debate is so disconnected from the evidence. I think another issue, of course, opportunity costs, when we're thinking about so a particular policy may have merit. Uh, just because it has merit doesn't mean that it's better than the alternatives. And what are the alternatives foregone from a particular policy? And that's something which the promoters of particular initiatives never, never think about. They never think about what it's like to be Pascal Donoghue, where he has to look at not just the merits of the policy, but what do we have to sacrifice and give up if we pursue that particular uh, initiative. And finally, there are a whole variety of challenges in relation to timing and incentives play, facing policymakers, uh, agents within the, within the marketplace. And often there's a disconnect between when a decision has to be taken or when it impacts uh, the difference between short term uh, and long term. And it's interesting again to look at uh, climate change and their, uh, Deputy Ryan and others uh, very much involved in, 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 in this space. If you think about climate change, the goal in itself is challenging, not just to reduce emissions, but to reduce emissions at the lowest possible cost, the minimal cost for the Irish state. And within this, there's enormous uncertainty, enormous complexity. Like, do we know the marginal cost of abatement of different options that are being pursued? Have we done the work? Have we done the analysis? How well is the civil service enabled to advise politicians about the low cost options in terms of reducing uh, emission? And there is, of course, in the political economy world, there's this disconnect between the pain of measures in the short run that will lead to a longer-term impact in terms of emissions uh, abatement. And in many ways, that, that intertemporal challenge is reflected in some of the discussions about, about water charges, that over time, efficiency gains would accrue, but people have to pay charges for a long time before we really see the benefits of having a more efficient, efficient water, water service. So uh, in the civil service, in terms of what we've been doing and what, what we can do in the future, uh, how can we have more effective policy making? What, what can we do? And I'll just throw out some things we've done and, uh, and, and some ideas for the future, and then maybe, maybe lead on to, to a discussion about it. I think it's really critical that we have strong institutions with the right values and the best people to produce that, that evidence. And we need people who are willing to argue for what they believe is in the public interest. And this can be difficult. Uh, we, need, we need organizations and people we're not going to be swayed by the easy option, by the easy decision, by the short-termism, by tomorrow's headline. Nor do we want people who like to be popular with a particular vested interest or a particular sexual interest. And I think that's something that has bedeviled policymaking in the past in the Irish system, that we haven't been strong enough and we haven't kept sufficient distance from vested interests who claim to act or purport to be in, in the public interest. And there's a particular role, I think, here for departments at the centre, my own department, the Department of Finance, the Department of Taoiseach, 
because we are not as close to those interests. So when it comes to education policy, the Department of Education has a relationship by the nature of it with the teacher union. At the centre, we could have a different relationship because we're, we're, we're further removed. And the extent to which we need strong institutions, but those at the centre uh, is really critical. In 2014, we launched a civil service renewal plan which set out a variety of measures to improve the capability and performance of the department. I don't have time to, to go through all this, but there are many people here who are familiar with what we've been trying to do. But as we know, institutions are about people, and much of our effort has been focused on improving the capability and capacity of individual civil servants and the organisations in which they work. So do we have the people looking at the public interest? Can they collect the evidence? Are they able to analyse policy, look at the costs and benefits? Do they have the implementation skills, an issue which came up very forcefully in the earlier session. Do we have the right mix of people who have policy skills and implementation skills? And what Josephine was saying about the revenue commissioners was, a, was, a, was a, a perfect example of it. The revenue have always had good policy, but also have good execution. And that's something that isn't the case throughout the system. And we've been trying to ensure that we have both and that we have much more mobility between. And at the top level appointments committee now, we have a system of appointments where we provide wagings, higher wagings for people who have both policy experience and execution experience and international experience. So we're trying to get a blend of different mixes of experience to ensure we have the best possible people. We've also invested much more in L&D than we did in the past. And I think a critical thing for the service, which isn't focused on enough, is that we have open recruitment now at different stages. So we now have people who can come into the civil service at AP, PO, Assistant Secretary, uh, and so on. So the traditional closed shop uh, has gone. And this has refreshed, refreshed our skills base. And it's taken a while, but we are now starting to see an impact it's having, particularly in areas where we are weak in project management skills. We've got more people who have experience in other environments in relation to project management. And that open approach, I think, is having a big impact. I think a further initiative uh, was the establishment of the Irish Government uh, Economic Evaluation Service. And this was created in 2012 uh, to build a capacity to support evidence-informed policymaking and better policymaking. And departments are supported to ensure they have the right skills and knowledge to produce the research and analysis that feeds in uh, to policy. And the strength of IGES is that it's working to be embedded as a core support service for policymakers across the system. So IGES staff are working on a variety of analysis to support the budgetary process, producing research on key economic challenges, Brexit, appraisal and evaluation of different projects uh, and issues. And we're trying to build up uh, this broad capacity. And there are many graduates now from this fine university who have found themselves uh, within this, within this organisation. Uh, a key element of it uh, is the production of various spending reviews, and a key part of our philosophy is that we actually publish uh, the papers, and they're all on our website. And over the, last, uh, over the last few years, we've published over 50 papers looking in detail at different spending issues that the government may wish or may not to, uh, to consider. So there's a vast wealth of information now on a whole variety of topics produced by in-house uh, economists within the government system who are looking at issues and trying to advise government as best they can. So this evidence-informed agenda involves better data, more research, more analysis, and more evidence. And that's really, I guess, the core of what I think is essential for us to have better policy. It's not going to achieve all our objectives, address many of the issues that were discussed earlier about the interface between politics and administration, but it certainly can lead to better outcomes. And one of them is in relation to data. Uh, and the CSO are, are leading on the national data infrastructure, trying to link together many, many different data sources uh, to ensure that the administrative data within the system is being used to good effect 
to, to help policymakers in understanding what's going on. And I was interested in what uh, Deputy Ryan said about uh, the discussions on the, the, the site tax. And I don't actually recall, I don't recall the details, and I'm going to ask my colleagues in finance next week, see who can remember exactly what the issues, uh, and maybe Deputy Burton can, can give her view on it. But I think you're right about the fact that data and inability to relate data across different sources was a factor in some of the concerns the Department of Finance had about that. Uh, that's my recollection, but I'd be interested just to check further, check further on that. And this data infrastructure initiative is addressing uh, some of the concerns uh, about that. I think we also, within the system, uh, need to develop uh, a culture of inquiry, uh, constantly ask questions, seek more efficient, more effective ways of doing it, and also a culture of challenge. Uh, I think that's critical. And if I think about Irish water, at various stages in the process when we were debating what to do next, there wasn't enough of people saying, stop, let's look again. Are we really doing the, the, I think you know, we had many debates, many discussions. Maria was involved in many of them, where at different stages we thought about what, but I, looking back on it now, I think if we'd had more of a culture, perhaps, more of a critical, challenging culture, perhaps we could have avoided uh, some, of those, some of those mistakes. Minister Donoghue uh, made a remark. It's always very important to reference your minister, I should say that. It's always important to get one reference to the minister in. Alec can tell him this morning I was speaking, tomorrow I was speaking globally about the minister's comments. But he did make a comment about dialogue is intrinsically a public good. And it's important to have a culture of open dialogue in which all voices are heard. And even if we disagree with each other, the fact of having the conversation has value. There's a public good aspect to that. And in our department, we are champions of engagement. Engagement between researchers and policymakers, engagement within academia, engagement between different stakeholders. And I think that's very important. And this policy and research flows in different directions, research responding to and influencing government objectives. And I think it's really important. I think as also as part of this, we do need a more informed and perhaps civilized debate. We need to be able to debate options that may be unpopular or adversely affect certain groups, but which are in the public interest. There's a lot of I guess, hysterical commentary, scare stories that characterize debate. We should be able to debate things in a, in a rational, sane way. Now, maybe we're going through a period in our, in our public life where this will pass. Uh, I'm, not so, I'm not so sure this might, be the, this might be the new norm. But we do need, I think, to have more informed discussions and debates about, about the options. Just a few more reflections on, on uh, policymaking, how, how to improve the process. Uh, I think in my experience, often we expect too much from a particular policy intervention. We try to achieve too much. We have too many goals, too many objectives, and Irish Water being an example of it. Sometimes these goals are not well-defined, they're, they're aspirational, or indeed sometimes they're, they're, they're contradictory. So to stand back and say, let's have goals which are clearly measurable, tangible, uh, and even prioritize them at a very simple level could help in terms of deciding what, what, what the policy is. Uh, and more generally, I think, a goal for policymakers uh, should be to reduce the complexity of the system where we can. Like I look at some things and it's just so complex. Uh, and this is not a criticism of colleagues in any department, but social protection, uh, which the system, as I mentioned, has grown so rapidly. Like the social welfare code is so complex, like the conditionality, the range of schemes, the scale. Just as one example, I think attempts to try uh, make it simpler for people to understand so they have a better sense of their eligibility, but also for us as custodians of the system to try uh, reduce complexity, I think it's very important. 
And it's interesting that the 10 year anniversary of the, of the whatever we call it, the, the Great Recession or financial crisis, whatever. It's called different things in different parts of the world, interestingly. Interesting. GFC in some parts of the world, and we call it, I think, the Great Recession. Anyway, whatever you want to describe it. I think the complexity of the system uh, in 2007, 2008, when the subprime, and the subprime losses, I'm just interested to reflect on it, the subprime losses in themselves weren't that significant relative to the size of the assets of the banking system. But since nobody really knew exactly where the liabilities would land because of the way in which the derivative market had, had developed over that, over that period, that complexity increased the vulnerability of the system and increased the risks. And I know regulatory policy is trying to reduce those risks and, and uh, future events will show whether we've been successful or not, and there are many, many different debates about it. But I think to have as policymakers a goal to try reduce complexity, focus on fewer goals, and better target instruments, I think, is a useful guide when we look at these, these things. And also, not just a focus on policy, but of course, implementation. I won't go through all the points that people have made already, but, but it is the case, I think, that to, to have a proper plan, implementation plan, risk assessment, uh, and especially when we're uh, developing a policy which may be dependent upon IT systems or infrastructure. Like I think about the, Ob the Obamacare in the States, the, the universal credit, Jill will tell us about all that in the UK, our own, our own experience with Irish water. If you have policy which depended upon uh, certain delivery systems for them to be successful in credibility, that increases the risks because, I, I don't know, I, I've been involved in many, many IT projects. I can't remember any one that actually arrived on time I would in budget and didn't have a whole variety of issues. Maybe I'd be interested if somebody could name an example of one which didn't have those characteristics. Maybe somebody will. Uh, but I think to be focused on those risks is, is, is very important. So in conclusion, uh, just to say again that in the system, we've set out an agenda of reform. Where we're implementing a whole variety of measures which we believe over time will lead to, to, to effective uh, policy making. But I think a really, a really key aspect is for us to have much more dialogue, much more open dialogue, much more engagement. And I think collaboration between institutions uh, like this uh, and leaders in the civil service I think is really important. So, Thanks again for, for the initiative and the invitation. I look forward to engaging in, in some discussion. Thank you.